connecting with 11.15. So, <clears throat> Elizabeth, if you could prepare to uh, <clears throat> show on the screen 11.15 and following. It has been several months since I've preached from Revelation. I've been gone a good bit this summer and didn't want to keep interrupting the series. And then also um, wanted the students to be able to uh, hear the continuing exposition of the book of Revelation. There are a few students who are new, and then we have some visitors here today. So I want to just review a couple of things that uh, will be new to the visitors, but old to those of you who have been listening to this series uh, from the beginning. Uh, There are a variety of approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. In fact, there are four major approaches. The one with which we are most familiar is the perspective that says all of the book of Revelation is in the future. And... um, And then the view that I espouse is that most all of the book of Revelation is describing something that happened within 70 years of Jesus' birth. So in the year 70 A.D., in the year of our Lord, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, and uh, that is described as a a world-ending event. And so when we find descriptions of the world coming to an end, like the sun becoming black as sackcloth and the moon, be, full moon becoming like blood and the stars of the sky falling to the earth. All of that is a metaphorical, poetic language describing that when the old covenant uh, collapsed with the destruction of Jerusalem, it was like the ending of a world and the beginning of a new world. So the book of Revelation is not just about the destruction of the old, of the old Jerusalem. Before we get to the end of the book, we'll also see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So in general, I think that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about the old Jerusalem being replaced by the new Jerusalem. The, the Lamb of God is uh, going to get a bride under the old covenant. Uh, Israel was said to be the wife of uh, the Lord, but the Lord divorced Israel because of her unfaithfulness. And then through the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has bought for himself a new bride. That bride is in the process of being assembled now. It's composed of people who are believers in Jesus. And in the future, there will be a marriage ceremony when the Lamb is married to us who comprise the, uh, the new bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. Now, there are several things that have led me to uh, conclude that most of the book of Revelation took place within a few years of its having been written. One is the close similarity between the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse, which is one of the sermons that Jesus preached near the end of his ministry on earth. And in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus describes uh, events that we have commonly affiliated with the distant future, the destruction of a world, and so on. And he says all of these things are going to happen within the lifetime of the people who are standing here. So I'm not going to take the time to read. You can find it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and in Luke uh, uh, you can find, find the Olivet Discourse, and you read those things, and many of us have been taught through our lives, that's going to happen at the end of the world. 
But Jesus says, no, it's all going to happen within the, this present generation. And so he describes the kind of events that we've been reading about here in the book of Revelation. And then the book of Revelation itself indicates that uh, what is being prophesied here is something that is going to have a very near fulfillment. So the book of Revelation starts off in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then in verse 3, Jesus says that he's coming soon. Twice in Revelation 22. So we've looked at the first chapter. Now let's look at the last chapter. Twice in chapter 22, Jesus says, I am coming soon. And then John is told not to seal up the things that he has written because the time is near. In contrast to that, Daniel, who prophesied about things that were going to happen several hundred years in the future, was told to seal up the book of his prophecy because the time of fulfillment was still a long way off, was several hundred years in the future. But uh, John is told, don't seal up the book, the book of Revelation because the time for fulfilling the book of Revelation is very close. And so those are some of the things that have led me to adopt the view that says that most of what we have described here in the book of Revelation, almost up until the end, most of these things are, uh, are ideas uh, that were fulfilled, prophecies that were fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem and the events leading up to that. Now John has, there are four times in the book of Revelation when he says that he was in the Spirit. So the first time is in chapter 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And, uh, and then in that vision, when he's in the Spirit, he sees a vision of Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus walking among the candlesticks. And then in chapter 4, there's another time when uh, John says, I was in the Spirit. At once I was in the Spirit, and I was up into heaven. And there he sees the vision of Jesus opening the seven seals. He sees the seven trumpets, the seven angels blowing the seven trumpets. And then he sees a third vision, which is the vision that we're going to begin exploring today. Now, the vision that we're going to explore today is an explanation, I believe, of the seventh trumpet. So let's, let's begin by reading what happened when the seventh trumpet was blown. And then in chapter 12, we'll see what was going on behind the scenes for the events to be accomplished, which are described with the blowing of the seven trumpets. So the seventh trumpet. So Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, 
an earthquake and heavy hail. So I think that those descriptions of those meteorological phenomena that are described there in, in verse 19 indicate the, the collapsing, the destruction of the old world, of the old covenant, and having been replaced by the, uh, the new covenant, uh, the new people of God described there in verses 17 and 18. Now I told you that there is a close similarity between my text for this morning in Psalm number 2. I know a few of you have Psalm number 2 memorized, but uh, for those of you who don't, let me just remind you that it starts off with, why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth have set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bonds from off of us. And then it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. And then he sets his king upon his holy hill of Zion. All of that's in Psalm number 2. Now take a look at uh, verse 18, which I just read, Revelation eleven eighteen. The nations raged. That's the beginning of Psalm number 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? In spite of all of their efforts to the contrary, nevertheless, God's will is accomplished. Your wrath came. You know, the, the king in, in uh, Psalm number 2 uh, speaks against those who have assembled themselves against the Lord and, and pours out his wrath upon them. Your wrath came in the time for your dead to be judged. <clears throat> and rewarding those people who, in Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Now, what we would expect, what we would expect to read next is, in fact, what we have. It is the setting of a king upon Mount Zion. But look at how it happens, and uh, so that takes us up to this first section in uh, Revelation chapter 12, the woman, the dragon, and the child. After we look at the woman, the dragon, and the child, we'll see that there is war in heaven, and then thirdly, we'll see that there is war on earth. But all of it, I believe, is an explanation of how did the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ? How is it that uh, verses 17 and 18, uh, which give the gist of the seventh trumpet, how did this happen? All right, let's look behind the scenes, and now we see that there was a spiritual warfare going on. Chapter 12, verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Who is the woman? Well, one of the principles that we have laid down in our interpretation of the book of Revelation is if we can interpret these signs by something that we find in the Old Testament, then that's what we're going to do. And in this case, we find an Old Testament reference when Joseph, as a young boy, uh, had dreams, and he told the dream to his uh, father, and it made his brothers very angry, but he said, I had a dream that the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me, Joseph himself being the twelfth star. And so at that time, that was the family of Jacob, that was the people of Israel, and so I believe that the woman here is the nation of Israel, but not the nation of Israel in general, but especially the, the people who knew the Lord and who were looking for the coming of the Messiah. <clears throat> so I'm talking about Israel just before Jesus was born. 
One of the main reasons that God uh, established Israel and caused them to remain separate from all of the nations was so that there would be a, a pure nest for Jesus to be born into. It would not be a nest that was corrupted with all the, the myths and idolatries of the people around them, but that there would be a people who had a revelation from God and who had several years of experience of dealing with God and that His Son would be born into that kind of environment. <clears throat> now, when Jesus was born, the nation of Israel in general was already badly deteriorated. But there were those within Israel, like Mary, like Joseph, like Simeon, like Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, people who, who understood that the time of the Messiah was drawing near and who were looking with eager expectation for the, the Messiah to be born. These people, like Zechariah and like Elizabeth, were greatly grieved by the apostasy that was taking place. They were like a woman in, in the agony and in the pain of childbirth. And then out of this situation, Jesus is born. But we don't see the birth of Jesus yet. What we have seen so far is Israel, the true spiritual people of God, who are represented by a woman, clothed with the sun in splendor, with authority of the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So spiritual Israel was glorious And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. But now in verse 3, we see another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child... He might devour it. And so here we are introduced to a great red dragon. Now, if you'll just cast your eyes down to verse number 9, we don't have to be puzzled about who the dragon was. Verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So we see that the dragon is none other than than Satan, a personal being, uh, some kind of a heavenly being who uh, probably out of envy because of what the Lord had announced that he was going to do with humans, decided that he was going to rebel against God and do all that he could to corrupt humans. And uh, what the Lord announced that he was going to do with humans is that he was going to replace the the primary place that angels had occupied for centuries and millennia and for ages for all we know, he was going to replace them with human beings. So that for a while, humans are a little lower than the angels, but eventually it is God's purpose to put all things under his feet, as we read in Psalm 8 and as is explained in Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews explains to us that... uh, The Lord has prophesied long ago that he's going to exalt humans to the supreme place in the universe above angels. And he says, and this is not new. So he goes, he refers us back to Psalm number 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. And then he says, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength to, to still the enemy and the avenger. And you have put all things, when I consider the heavens 
the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you've put all things under his feet. And the writer of Hebrews says, well, we don't see that happening yet. The, the prophecy says that all things are going to be put under the feet of humans, but we don't see that happening yet. But then the writer of Hebrews says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. And so the writer of Hebrews says, the process has commenced, and it has commenced with the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Satan was not happy about that plan. John Milton has uh, Satan's rebellion taking place uh, before the earth was ever created. So uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost opens with uh, Satan and his angels being cast down into hell. And then, <clears throat> and then he comes to earth and he sees Adam and Eve and seduces them to, uh, to sin. <clears throat> the Bible never really tells us when Satan fell. Uh, we have a, 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 a tendency to just agree with John Milton. Uh, but it's very likely that Satan swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Oh, I need to explain that. It's angels. But he swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And it seems to be at the time when he decided that rather than instructing Adam and Eve as he ought to have done, he instead decided that he was going to tempt them into sin. But whenever it was, the the scripture here says that he, with his tail, he swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, why do I say that these stars were angels. It's because of a verse of Scripture that's in Job chapter 38. And I believe it's verse 4. I'm not going to turn there, but here's what it says. When God created the heavens and the earth, it says that the morning stars sang for joy and all the sons of God shouted for gladness. And so there, in Hebrew poetry, Often the second line explains the first line, and the first line is that when God created everything, the morning stars sang for joy, and then the next line explains that it is the sons of God, (coughs) which we take take to be angels. And so uh, the Bible never clearly lays out the storyline that we're so familiar with of how Satan rebelled against God. In fact, in In Isaiah chapter 14, we read a story about a a being called Lucifer who falls from heaven. But then the explanation there is that it's it's the king of Babylon. It's not not Satan first and foremost. And then in Ezekiel chapter chapter 28, there's another story about a glorious being rebelling against God. And many people take Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 to be referring to the fall of the devil, but it's not certain. We don't know for sure that that's what happened. <clears throat> Many commentators, Matthew Henry and others, will say, yeah, this is describing more than the fall of the king of Babylon and more than the fall of the king of Tyre. There's kind of spiritual overload here that is more than can be borne by the king of Tyre and, and the king of Babylon. Well, that may be an explanation But whatever the case, we have strong intimations that there was some kind of a rebellion and that it entailed about one-third of the angelic hosts that sided with Satan. And we assume that those, uh, those angels, those angelic beings that rebelled against God and sided with Satan 
are now the, 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 the demons and evil spirits that Satan uses to assist him in his, uh, his, his ongoing attacks against the Lord. Now, he's stand, Satan knows, from the Garden of Eden, he knows the prophecy that the seed of woman is going to bruise his head. So when God was pronouncing uh, a curse against Adam and then against Eve, and then he pronounced a curse against the serpent, he said, you're cursed, you will eat dust all of your days, and the seed of woman is going to bruise your head. You'll bruise his heel, but the seed of woman is going to bruise your head. And so... <clears throat> Satan has, has been a child devourer throughout history. So you think of what happened uh, when uh, Israel was growing plentiful in a population in Egypt. Then uh, Satan stirred up Pharaoh to say, you've got to throw all the baby boys into the Nile River. And then when Jesus was born and Herod learned from the wise men that he was to have been born in Bethlehem of Judea. Then Satan stirred up Herod, kill all the baby boys under the age of two that are in the region of Bethlehem. <clears throat> and because Satan wanted to kill Jesus as soon as he was born and, and, and crush the prophecy that the seed of the woman was going to crush his head. And so that's what's happening here. Satan is on the alert waiting for this child to be born, and as soon as he is born, he wants to devour that child. Now, verse 5, we see the child. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Oh, you folks who have Psalm 2 memorized, now you see that this is really a recounting of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 tells us that the Lord sets his king upon Zion and that he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And here is that male child prophesied in Psalm 2. He is born. It's Jesus, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And so this is just a very quick summary of what happened in Jesus' life and ministry. This part right here leaves out the cross and all of his teaching and so on. It just has him, he's born, and then he is snatched up to heaven. And there he is uh, enthroned. And uh, that is, of course, keeping with what happens in Psalm number 2. So he is, he's, Jesus is caught up to heaven. Satan is unsuccessful in his bid to, uh, to kill the Christ child, and now he can't kill him because he is in heaven, and the woman, Israel, so spiritual Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, this is not the first time that we've encountered 1,260 days. You can turn back and see chapter 11 and verse 3. Uh, the two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 days. And so here we have it again. Later on in this chapter, we're going to have a time, times, and half a time, and then we also will have 42 months. All four of those designations, or three, all of those designations refer to the same period of time. 1,260 days is 42 lunar months, and 42 lunar months 
is three and a half years. Time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Now, I think that this is very likely a symbolic figure. It's taken from the book of Daniel. We have 1,260 days there. It's very likely a symbolic figure. It's half of seven, which seven is the number of perfection. And so it doesn't mean that this time of persecution is going to last forever. There's a limit to it. But, so I've said I think it's primarily symbolic, but the persecution of Christians under Nero lasted for three and a half years. Not only that, but the war against Jerusalem lasted for three and a half years. Now, if you remember, so 1,260 days, time, times, half a time. So, you may recall in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus tells his disciples, when you see the abomination that causes desolation surrounding Jerusalem, which we know to be the Roman armies, when you see the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem, then flee, he told his disciples, run, don't even stop if you're on the housetop. Don't even stop to get something from the, the first floor. Run. Woe to women who are pregnant because they can't run that fast. But get out of Jerusalem. And history tells us that that is what the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ did. I don't mean just the 12 disciples. I mean the hundreds and the thousands of people who had become believers. When they saw the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem... Then, no doubt, some of the men who remembered the teaching of Jesus and who were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said, Oh, (coughs) Jesus said that we're to get out of town now, so let's go. And so they went. We even know the town that they went to. They went to a town called Pella, and there they were protected from much of the devastation that happened with the warfare that took place in Jerusalem. Now, remember that most of the devastation that took place in Jerusalem was intramural fighting. It was not the Romans killing the Jews. It was mostly the Jews killing one another. So the Christians escaped for the time that is specified here, a symbolic number, but it's very, very close to what literally happened for three and a half years. So that's the woman, the dragon, and the child. This is what is going on behind the scenes of the seventh trumpet. Now, what happens in the next section of, uh, of this chapter uh, explains, so this is a behind-the-scenes look at the spiritual things that are going on between, behind the events on earth. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. All right, before we go on, we know who the dragon is. We've already identified him. That's Satan. Uh, But who is Michael? Now, there are people who will say, well, Michael is, uh, it's the name of the archangel. But the archangel just means the captain of the angels. So it could very well be the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that it is the Lord Jesus Christ because of uh, what we read in uh, the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 10. So in Daniel chapter 10, uh, it's, it's kind of a lengthy passage, so I'm not going to read all of it, but uh, Daniel is uh, praying, and the Lord sends a, a, 
a man to Daniel. It's, it's almost certainly the Lord Jesus Christ that he sends to him. Uh, he sends a, a person to Daniel. And uh, then this person, who is described in much the same way that Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1, eyes of flame and so on, this person says, I would have come to you sooner, but I was resisted by the prince of Persia, but Michael came and helped me. So in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, we have someone that I think is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ, and he refers to someone else as Michael and says that Michael came to help me. And, uh, you know, Michael is called your prince. And so it may be that Michael was an angel who was especially entrusted with the responsibility of helping to take care of Israel. So in, in uh, Revelation twelve seven, I think that this is a, a, a depiction of an angelic, uh, of a heavenly battle, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Now that's very similar to the song that was sung when the seventh trumpet was blown. But when Satan is cast down, Then the loud voice in heaven says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So I think that this is telling us what happened when Jesus was born and then he died on the cross and ascended up into heaven. There was a a change of people who were allowed to be in heaven. And so the the change is Satan is no longer allowed the access to heaven that he apparently has had before he was cast out. And we're tempted to say that Michael and his angels cast him out, but that's not what this passage says. In fact, we haven't got to what this passage says yet. How, How is it that he gets thrown down? And, uh, but anyway, he does get thrown down. Now, you remember that in uh, Job chapter 1, the sons of God are appearing before the Lord, and Satan is among them. And uh, the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's upright. There's no one like him. And Satan says, ah, he just worships you because you've given him so much stuff. And the Lord says, well, you can take all that stuff away, but don't hurt him, and, uh, and we'll see. And so Satan takes away all of his stuff, and Job retains his integrity. Sometime later, after that happens, Satan appears in heaven before the Lord again, and the Lord says, you incited me against my servant Job, but he didn't do what you said he would do. And Satan says, ah, he'll do it for his health. Let me take away his health, and then he'll curse you. And the Lord says, all right, go ahead, you can take away his health. And so that's when Job is smitten with boils and he sits down on the ash heap and scraps, uh, scratches himself with a piece of broken pottery. And, uh, and his wife says, why do you maintain your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, then the book of Job, I mean, that's, Job has great faith. 
for which he is noted in the New Testament, but the rest of the book of Job shows that Job is a whole lot more like you and me and uh, figuring, trying to figure out why did this happen? I didn't deserve to have this happen to me. Why is this going on? And, um, but anyway, I, I bring all that up to say, apparently Satan has, up until the time that he was thrown out of heaven, he had some kind of right to be in heaven and to be an accuser of the brothers. But then with the ascension of Christ and this battle that takes place with the ascension of Christ, and I believe the application of the blood of Christ, then Satan, the accuser of the brothers, is thrown out. Now in Romans chapter 3, it tells us that God presented Jesus as a propitiation and that he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In other words, the sins of the Old Testament saints had still not been paid for. And so Satan could continue to say, God, you, you say that you're just, but you've got David here. You say that you're just, but you've got Moses here. You said that the wages of sin is death. How come these guys are still living in heaven and not suffering in the torments of eternal death. And when Jesus died, then God's wrath was satisfied, but it also shut Satan's mouth. So that Satan, the accuser of the brothers, is cast down from heaven and he no longer has that place in heaven where he can bring accusations against the people of God. Now he's on the earth. And he'll bring accusations against you, but that's where we need to overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, which is what, joined together with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, is what joined together to throw Satan out of heaven. Look at verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. So these martyrs that we were uh, introduced to in Revelation chapter 5 when the fifth seal is opened Then John sees under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they have borne. And they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood against those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers should be complete who were to be slain just as they had been. And now as the blood of the martyrs continues to mount up and and uh, the, the, the number of the martyrs continues to accumulate, then the Lord says, now that is enough. Now there have been martyrs since that time, and martyrs continue to share and become, and share with the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But apparently, at this time, during this persecution, it was part of the throwing down of Satan that was accomplished by those who were Uh, killed for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Yeah, Satan is no longer allowed to run his mouth in heaven, 
But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. How did he know that his time was short? Well, because Jesus had said so. Jesus had said, in the lifetime of this generation, he says, while he's still alive, in the lifetime of this generation, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be proclaimed throughout all the earth. In other words, the, the church, the people of God, is no longer going to be limited to just one nation, the nation of Israel. It is going to become a church in which the Gentiles participate also. And, and that did happen. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that he's proclaiming the gospel, which has been proclaimed throughout all the world. And, and what he means by that is not that the Mayan Indians in, in Central America and South America heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that the gospel had spread within just a very short while uh, to the known civilized world. And so Satan knew that he had to work hard if he was going to stamp out the church before it became a worldwide, a worldwide church. So he comes down in great wrath. So that's the, that's the battle in heaven, and now we've got Satan on earth. Let's look at the battle on earth, which begins being described in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And so remember that the, the woman is spiritual Israel. It's the people of God. And so when the dragon sees that he's been thrown down to the earth and he continues to pursue and uh, to run after the people of God. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, what is this two wings of the great eagle? Well, remember our principle that we, uh, we want to interpret this book by the Old Testament when we can. And so there are a couple of passages in the Old Testament which I believe help us to know what the two wings of the great eagle are. The first one is Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. And in Exodus, Exodus 19, 4, the Lord says, I brought you out of Egypt and I carried you on eagle's wings. And then again, in the great song of Moses, in, uh, in, uh, recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, the Lord goes at length very beautifully to say that through the wilderness, I carried you on eagle's wings, I stirred you up as an eagle stirs up her nest. And it's interesting what an eagle does. I've never seen this, but I've read about it and heard about it, that when it's time for baby eagles to fly, the baby eagle doesn't want to get out of the nest. And so the mama eagle shoves them out. And you know, they're way up there on high cliffs and, and it shoves the baby eagle out. And the baby eagle's flapping and flying down to earth and got to be thinking, what's going on here? And then the mother eagle comes down and swoops under and catches the baby eagle on her wings. I'm going to have to look up on YouTube and see if I can see any videos of that happening because I've read that and heard that for years and years that that's what a mother eagle will do. She knocks them out of the nest and then she comes down and she catches them and carries them to safety and she does that until they learn to fly. That's the way the Lord describes his dealings with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. Well, now... The woman, spiritual Israel, is given the two wings of the great eagle so that she can be delivered from a bad place. But look, 
Jerusalem has become Egypt. Jerusalem has become the the polluted place of slavery. And so now the Lord is carrying His people out and He's carrying them into the wilderness where they're going to be protected for three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time. And so this is, this, the devil is pursuing the people of God, but the people of God are carried on the wings of the Lord into a place of safety. Well, Satan is not finished. Now he is called the serpent, there in verse 14, and also in verse 15. A dragon pursues, a serpent deceives, and the serpent now pours water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. And so the serpent just pours all of this, all of this hatred against the people of God towards the city of Jerusalem. But look, the people of God are not there now. The people of God have fled following the teaching of Jesus, following the instructions of Jesus. The Christians have fled, and now it's just the earth that is left there in Jerusalem, now no longer a heavenly city, but an earthly city. And that earthly city receives the brunt of the flood of persecution that Satan pours out of his mouth. And so the earth came to the help of the woman. It sounds like the earth is standing up and saying, hey, I'm going to help you, but uh, I, I think... The idea here is the Lord providentially is using physical circumstances to absorb uh, the wrath of Satan against his people. So the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Well, this is certainly a poisonous river. Rivers do not... uh, Rivers are are usually not very nice things in the book of Revelation. There finally is in chapter 20, 21, 22. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, pure as crystal. That's a good river. But at this point, rivers have mostly been turned into blood. They've been turned into poisonous things. And you may be sure if it's a river coming out of the mouth of the serpent, that it is a poisonous river. And the earth drinks it in. And then the next time we see the earth, the earth is producing a beast that arises out of the earth. Well, the, uh, the earth swallows the river that the dragon has poured. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Namely, those who keep the commandments of God and hold it to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And um, so... After the Jews fled from Jerusalem and the persecution that took place, uh, uh, then they were dispersed throughout Asia Minor. In fact, you know, the opening chapters of the book of Revelation are addressed to churches not in Judea, not in Palestine, but churches that are located in what we think of as Turkey, in Asia Minor. And so this is a book of comfort that is sent to them The devil has come after you. The devil is pursuing you. But don't worry. And here are a couple of lessons for them and a couple of lessons for us to bring this, this study to a close this morning. Don't worry. Behind the the physical, political things that are happening on earth, God is still in control. And that's relevant for us. You know, I... 
Many of us are distressed at uh, the condition of our country and philosophies and ideologies that are deeply influencing our schools. And, and Satan is still trying to devour our children as he stood before the woman and as through uh, Pharaoh and through Herod he tried to devour the children. Uh, Satan would still like to devour our children and their ideas and philosophies that have taken hold in our uh, government school system and throughout our culture that are highly destructive. It, it is a river of poison that is being poured out of the mouth of the dragon. But the Lord, the Lord is working in all of this to accomplish His purposes. A second lesson that we can learn from this is that there, there are times when God brings great victory out of what looks like a dismal defeat. I mean, when Jesus gets crucified... That looks pretty bad, but it is through the crucifixion of Christ that Satan is cast out of heaven, and uh, and so with when this when the martyrs get killed, what devastation to their family? You know their their father who how has been has been killed for the sake of Jesus. How are we going to eat now? Who's going to take care of us? That was a very dismal situation. But God uses the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the testimony of the martyrs who did not consider their own lives precious, even unto death. He uses that to accomplish great purposes in heaven. They overcame him through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And so it looks like a very dismal situation, but God brings great victory out of dismal situations. And you might be in a dismal situation right now. You might be going through a period of great confusion or great sadness. There may be all kinds of family turmoil going on in your life. And uh, you just say, how, how, could this, how could anything good come out of this? Well, call out to the Lord who is able to bring victory out of dismal situations. And He may use it in a way that you're not even aware of. The third lesson that we can take from this passage of Scripture is... The faithful are going to win. And so there may be temporary setbacks. There may be temporary disappointments. But eventually, those who side with the Lord Jesus Christ are going to win and are going to be honored because they're on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you on His side? Are are you on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, then turn away from the rebellion that... Satan has introduced into this world and introduced into your life. Satan doesn't love you. He wants to eat you. He wants to devour you. But you can turn away from Satan and your allegiance with his rebellion by repenting of your sin, receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, the King who has been set on the holy hill, who has been exalted in heaven, and uh, who even now says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a hymn of conclusion.